Welcome to our fourth remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. And this morning, we continue in our Heart of the Kingdom message series, which links Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to the heart of the one who preached it. God is Lord of all creation, but more narrowly, the kingdom is his spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. A kingdom lifestyle described in Jesus' sermon is attainable for those who have experienced the new birth and have access to the Holy Spirit's enabling power. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus defines the Christian counterculture. A culture is the conventions, social forms, and traits of a people group, while a counterculture rejects the values and behaviors of that dominant culture. The verb form of culture is cultivate. And since the dominant culture does not cultivate the way of Jesus, we look to his teachings to guide us. Now, it may not feel like it, but today is Palm Sunday, the day we observe Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey heralded as king. For 20 years, a highway tradition has been to hand out palm fronds as people enter the auditorium on Palm Sunday. And I love it. I love seeing the kids twirl theirs and worshipers drop them in the aisle on their way out, a profession of faith that Jesus is the king. In Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, there was a similar scene, an amazing swell of support for Jesus by Jews gathered to celebrate Passover. The city was packed with pious pilgrims from all over, coming to celebrate the Jews' greatest festival, the celebration of God's deliverance out of Egypt. Hopes were high. Jesus had been presenting signs that he was, in fact, the Messiah through miracles and healings of mind and body. Early Sunday morning, the crowds were gathering. The crowds were ready. A raucous mob laid palms on his path, It was the peak of Jesus's popularity. But as the week wore on, people realized he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. That Friday, they lined the streets as he made his way to Golgotha. They were among those at the foot of the cross demanding, crucify him. When they realized the nature of the counterculture Jesus called them to, they said, forget it. (laughs) There's nothing here for us. Poor in spirit, hungry and thirsty? When they understood that the focus of God's kingdom wasn't on them, they rejected Jesus and looked for salvation elsewhere. And in a time when we desperately want rescue, not from the Roman Empire, but from a growing pandemic, we may react in a similar way. God, focus on us. We'll see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, as Jesus addresses the three chief acts of Jewish piety, that he underscores these are not done for us. God is the audience, not us, not others. Because in the kingdom of God, God is always the audience. And when we finally realize that the kingdom is about God, not us and not others, we will understand and revel in the reality that God is our audience. But first, 
let's hear Jesus's corrections of these core religious practices in order to position ourselves toward God as our audience. God is the audience. Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. After announcing to his disciples that their righteousness must surpass that of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus warns of the dangers of religious hypocrisy. Human nature, such as it is, Jesus knew that worthy pursuits may become causes for pride. He saw people practicing piety for others as the audience, not God. And this wasn't Jesus's practice. He lived his life with an audience of one, God his Father. He sought to draw attention to God, not himself. And in the, in the incarnation, um, this was an act of self-emptying. And Jesus began his sermon um, with beatitudes, blessings attached to self-emptying. Those who are poor in spirit, reflective in mourning, meek and hungry and thirsty for righteousness, hold space for God. They're emptied and available for filling. Mercy, purity, peacemaking, and overcoming persecution flow out of focusing our attention on God, not ourselves. To trade pleasing the Father for the trivial pursuit of pleasing ourselves or others is not culturally correct in the kingdom of God. And when each practice Jesus addresses, he explains how to do it in the right way. He guarantees that those ignoring this warning get what they want and no more. Each of these practices is combined with the spiritual discipline of secrecy to assure that God remains the focus. And secrecy is consciously refraining from having our good deeds and qualities generally known, which in turn disciplines our longing for recognition. With each, Jesus assures that the Father who sees in secret will reward openly. First, God is the audience of giving. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. <clears throat> in each example Jesus sets forth, he frames his comments with when, not if. In other words, giving, praying, and fasting is compulsory for a person of faith. And so Jesus isn't appealing to them to begin these practices. Instead, he's directing the manner and heart in which they are done with God as the focus. So when you give to the needy, Jesus says, stay away from any idea of merit or ostentation. Jewish rabbinical writings included frequent warnings against inappropriate displays, which attests to the commonness of the practice. Do not announce with trumpets, that refers to trumpets heralding the collection of alms in the temple for the needy. Some believe the collection boxes were trumpet-shaped to discourage pilfering. You couldn't get your hand in there. 
There's no evidence that prideful Jews actually blew trumpets on their way to the temple. However, this is where the idiom blowing your own horn derives. Uh, they gave the appearance of acting in the best interests of God and the needy who were only too willing to flatter and bolster almsgivers, hoping they would give more. And the Pharisees' great weakness was that they loved men's praise more than God's. In John 5, 44, Jesus says, How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek glory that comes from the only God? They may win, they may win human plaudits, but that's all they get. Now, I've noticed something about myself. When I tip servers at the Red Rock coffee shop, and by the way, the Red Rock is still open, and so we invite you to come and pick up some coffee each day. <laughs> um, when I'm there, I like to wait until the server turns around with my drink, look them in the eye, then drop a few dollar bills into their jar. See, here I am, being generous. Remember my generosity when the next customer doesn't give any tip at all. What is my motivation then in giving a tip? Is it out of appreciation for their service or compassion for hourly wage earners? Or is it because I want to be seen as generous and kind, unlike those other folks? If I happen to catch their attention, well, I have my reward. But what does God think? Hebrews 4.13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, even tipping in a coffee shop. Now, Jesus calls for secrecy in giving to ensure that our attention is on God. Giving must be prompted by love for God and compassion for others. Uh, the verb to reward, it has a sense of, of payback or recompense. And Jesus doesn't discuss the nature of the reward, but he's clear that we should not think in terms of an immediate benefit. Oh, there is joy in doing good now, um, but there will be more throughout eternity for things done to honor God. And so God is the audience of giving and next, we see that God is the audience of prayer. Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is, in, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. A prayer had a prominent place in Jewish life. Prayer is the most Godward act. Uh, in synagogue worship, someone from the congregation might be asked to pray publicly, <clears throat> standing in front of the ark. At certain times, prayers could be offered in the streets, but the location was not the critical factor, nor 
was the standing posture itself. Throughout scripture, we see people praying prostrate, kneeling, sitting, and standing. Uh, their motive was the point, um, not their posture, um, whether it was done to be seen by men or by God. In exhorting his followers to pray in secret, Jesus was not precluding public prayer. However, public versus private prayer is a good test of motives. Those who pray more in public than in private may reveal that they are less interested in God's approval than in human praise. The Father, from whom nothing is hidden, will reward the disciple who prays discreetly, interested only in God as his audience. And Jesus assumes his followers will pray, but not in an insincere way. Jesus goes on to correct the idea that repetitious prayer somehow gets God's attention and guarantees a positive response. Some place their confidence in human effort. Badger God until he gets tired of hearing it uh, and gives in to your request. Jesus isn't prohibiting long or repetitious prayers, but God wants us to persist in prayer with our minds engaged and our eyes wide open to who he is and how he works. God knows the needs of his children, and so we pray with confidence and trust. Going to Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In what has come to be called the Lord's Prayer, Jesus provides a pattern for our prayers. Pray along these lines when you pray. The prayer is divided into two movements, with the first focused on the character and glory of God, and the second focused on our needs and duty to others. Verses 9 and 10 says, Your, 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 your name, your kingdom, your will. In verses 11 through 15, we see our, 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 our daily bread, our debts, forgive our debtors. Your name. Our first prayer is in God's name, Father, which reveals that he is personal and authoritative. He is our Father in the sense that we originated from him and he is attached to us as his children. Jesus' habit of addressing God as Abba Father seemed overly familiar to Jews in that day. And for many believers today, that kind of intimacy with God is difficult, often related to the disconnect between human fathers and their children. We may come boldly as his children uh, because he is our Father, but with all due respect toward our Father. Jesus speaks of his unique sonship and authority when he says, my father. But here we're called to address God as our father, a prayer to be prayed in community with other believers. We pray to a personal, caring, transcendent God, our father in heaven, hallowed, holy, worthy is God's name. Your kingdom. Our second prayer is for God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is his royal rule on earth. He reigns in absolute sovereignty over both nature and history. And to pray his kingdom come 
is to pray that his kingdom may grow in the hearts of mankind and that more will submit themselves to God's gracious rule in their lives. This is a prayer for the spread of the gospel locally and around the world, the advance of the Great Commission, the extension of the kingdom of God. May his kingdom come, already having broken through with Jesus' arrival, and now bring heaven to earth and then earth to heaven for all eternity. Your will. The third prayer is to pray for God's good, acceptable, and perfect will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, we pray that life on this earth will, will more closely reflect life in heaven, in love, and peace, and justice, and righteousness. When the kingdom is consummated, evil that Jesus addressed in his sermon, such as hypocrisy and lust and hatred and divorce, won't be discussed because they won't exist. Uh, these first three petitions focusing on God's name, kingdom, and will are prayers for his people to hollow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will. Our Father, we are humbled by God's name and dependent upon him. Your kingdom come. We're committed to God's kingdom and work to spread it. Your will be done. We're confident in God's love and submissive to his leading. In Matthew 6, 11, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Give us. The fourth prayer is for our daily bread, the necessities of life. And this prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. Jesus wanted his followers to be conscious of a day-to-day -day reliance on God. Every breath of air, every bite of food, the idea is to live one day at a time in dependence upon God for everything. Prayed in the morning, we pray for sustenance for that day. Prayed in the evening, we pray for sustenance for the next day. Here we acknowledge God as our sustainer and provider. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Forgive us. The fifth prayer is for forgiveness of sins and the ability to forgive others for theirs. Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear, by comparison, trifling. If we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Debts includes sins of commission and omission, both purposeful and apathetic disobedience. Confession is as crucial to the health of our souls as food is for the health of our bodies. And sin is a debt because it deserves to be punished. But God forgives us, remits the penalty, and drops the charge against us. Proof of our penitence and forgiveness is that we forgive others because our own failings provide perspective. God is forgiving us while at the same time we are forgiving others. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Lead us. The sixth prayer is for deliverance. Part of taking sin seriously is is inviting God to protect us from it. Deliver means to be spared or preserved in the midst of temptation. And temptation here is distinguished from trials of faith and character that are not due to sin. And while God doesn't tempt us with evil, Satan does. God is the one who delivers us from the temptations that Satan brings. And this prayer is for our ability to endure, to overcome whatever comes into our lives that might move our attention away from God, our Father. So the Lord's Prayer takes every area of our existence and connects it with the goodness, mercy, and purposes of God. This pattern for prayer with its Godward glance positions us to be surprised, not by suffering, but by joy. May we be surprised by rays of beauty that shine forth in our difficult moment. May we be surprised by acts of human kindness as we pull toward and for each other, not surprised by frightened people behaving badly. May we be surprised at the courage and commitment of those caring for those infected with the virus and cheer them on. And may we pray in the pattern of the Lord's Prayer in order to see God at work. So God is the audience of giving. God is the audience of prayer. And now finally, God is the audience of fasting. Matthew 6, 16. Here Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now under the law of Moses, fasting was commanded only on the the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, But during the exile, there were other fasts of remembrance uh, that were instituted. And these fasts were personal or group fasts reflecting uh, repentance or uh, special needs or deep distress. Old Testament prophets denounced the people for turning these into formal hypocritical fasts uh, while ignoring the plight of others. Uh, Isaiah 58.3, it says... Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And when Jesus' day, uh, Pharisees fasted twice a week, probably Monday and Thursday. Voluntary fast provided marvelous opportunities for religious showmanship to gain a reputation for piety. And some adopted a somber air. They just let themselves go. They didn't wash. 
The men didn't shave. Uh, they sprinkled ashes over their heads to draw attention to their deep contrition. They wanted the plaudits of others, and they got them. And that's all they got. And in this sermon, Jesus presents fasting as part of the normal Christian lifestyle to give special attention to God. So there is value in fasting. And far from banning fasting, Jesus assumes his disciples will fast, but not while he is with them. In Matthew 9, 14 and 15, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, so John the Baptist's disciples, they asked, Well, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And so the time for us now is for fasting with God as the audience, holding space for him by practicing the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Secrecy, as Jesus modeled it, is intentionally keeping our spiritual life on the down low. God is the audience. No one else matters. It's the practice of denying ourselves the attention and admiration from others that we might receive instead of keeping our righteousness quiet. Jesus discouraged his disciples from emulating the grandstanding Pharisees who made sure everyone watched them piously give, pray, and fast. Focusing on God is soul training that holds space for God to fill us. <clears throat> As we close, one of the realities of a pandemic is how small and insignificant it makes us feel. Today, 1,140,598 coronavirus cases have been reported with 842,886 still active worldwide, 61,184 people have died and 236,528 people have recovered. On this day in the USA, there were 32,284 new cases and 1,321 new deaths, bringing the total of those who've passed away so far to 7,392. <clears throat> it was recently announced we may be able to keep deaths to 100,000, and that's pretty good. Really? <laughs> I mean, let's look into the face of each person who died and each family member who lost a loved one and then say it's pretty good. We've all read about what's happening in Italy, Spain, and now New York City. Overwhelmed hospitals, overwhelmed morgues, overwhelmed people. Because of the nature of the virus and the number of deaths, Families are robbed of funerals, memorials, and cultural rituals to honor loved ones who pass. And now many clergy minister to the sick and dying via FaceTime and Zoom. And the need for social distancing will preclude gatherings to honor our dead for months, maybe years to come. And now there's talk about everyone wearing, wearing face masks for protection against the virus which is a sen sensible thing, but soon we'll be faceless too. 
As Bob Seger sang in an old rock anthem, I feel like a number, like a spoke in a great big wheel, like a tiny blade of grass in a great big field. But not to God. In the kingdom of God, God is our audience. And we are God's audience. As insignificant as we might feel now with all that is going on, God is giving his undivided attention to us, to each and every one of us. This goes beyond human comprehension. How can this be? As we close, listen to the words of Psalm 139, and you'll see. And may God's unceasing attention and love for each of us fill our hearts with hope so that we may share this relentless supply with others. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, well, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. When I, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Jesus revealed the order to life only God can establish. Reflected in the kingdom of God. God is our audience and you are God's audience. May you be filled with hope and peace beyond human comprehension. God is endlessly drawn to you. Mm -hmm.